0: I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. This show was born out of my own personal terribles, and if you've been listening long enough, you already know them, and if you're new, here they are. Lost a pregnancy, lost my dad, lost a husband, boom, 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 just like that from October to November 2014, one after the other, no time to get back on shore before being ripped back into the waves, no way of telling what was up or if the storm would ever settle, People give you a lot of books when your life falls apart. They give you hot dishes and they give you books. And when it's safe, they give you hugs. We are people who want to comfort, who want to have the right words and the right things to make it better as fast as we can. When really, if you've been in the shit, you know that some things just cannot be fixed and some things are just hard. I got many books after all that happened, and many of them ended up in the donation pile because my brain could not read. I could read, but I couldn't absorb. I could form the words, but they didn't mean anything. But one of the books that I actually read that actually got through all of the grief and all the pain was Anne Lamott's book, Traveling Mercies, and here's why. It's this quote right here. You will lose someone you can't live without, and your heart will be badly broken, And the bad news is that you never completely get over the loss of your beloved. But this is also the good news. They live forever in your broken heart that doesn't seal back up. And you come through. It's like having a broken leg that never heals perfectly. That still hurts when the weather gets cold. But you learn to dance with the limp. All of us terribles are learning to dance with the limp. Or at least walk with it. We all know what it means to lose someone or something you thought you could never survive, to live with a heart that never quite seals back up. Since reading that one book, I've read all of her books, I've gotten immense amounts of comfort and wisdom from her writing book, Bird by Bird, which I've recommended on this podcast before. I have dog-eared and highlighted all of her books, and this is where I put in a big disclaimer. Anne Lamott is a Christian and a writer, and yet she's not a Christian writer, or she's not that kind of Christian writer, which I know will absolutely offend some people, but I think we all know there is a brand of Christianity that feels very unlike Christ himself that perpetuates health and wealth, personal responsibility, over communal care, and Anne is the opposite of that. Her faith and her writing are the opposite of that. If she weren't, we wouldn't air this episode. I wouldn't have sent in all-caps YES to her reps when they reached out offering her precious time for this interview. I sent that email less than a minute after I got their email because I believe that acting cool is vastly overrated, and your enthusiasm is never something to be ashamed of. But I had also just read her most recent book and dog-eared that, and it felt like perfect timing. So... Recorded in my closet and her beautiful office, here is our conversation with Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott, there's almost too much to talk to you about, and if we had a patron saint of this podcast, Terrible, thanks for asking, I hope you would take it as a compliment to say that you would be the patron saint of this podcast.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Um, You are a person whose work and whose life really spans the human experience and is not afraid to acknowledge and make space for the fact that, honestly, life is sometimes just really fucking hard. And that's the thing.
1: That's the whole thing. It's really, I mean, you don't get that message from your parents or the culture or much of anything the message is that you should be doing better that you have a better life than almost everyone on earth and what is the problem and lighten the fuck up but the only people I'd ever want to be friends with are the ones who say terrible I hate everything how are you and this is the place for you it really is and we don't get this
0: message we don't get that kind of validation growing up I was raised by boomers And I have slowly, through many years of therapy, realized it's not their fault, and it's not even their parents' fault. We are all a product of the ways in which the people who raised us were raised, and the people who raised them were raised. But with all that said, what were the messages that you got in childhood, and what kind of a kid were you?
1: Well, I was a very shy and social kid. I was told I was really funny-looking. I had this curly kinky hair and I was very very thin and back in the 50s it seemed fine for adults to comment to your parents within earshot of how thin you were how skinny did they feed you and I wrote in operating instructions that I was 35 before I realized the B plus was a good grade they'd forgotten to mention that so I spent my childhood dancing as fast as I could to do better, to try to save my parents' marriage by having so few needs and by doing so, so well that their attitude and their vibe might improve. And it didn't work at six years old, and I'm uh, about to be 67. It doesn't work any better now (laughs) to try to get everybody else to be happy so that I can feel safe. But yeah, the message was that okayness was within my reach, but as is, I was not okay. And the message was, you know, to stay on your toes, that to relax meant that you would be squashed, to relax and maintain the playfulness of early childhood and the generosity and the the really merciful heart of really little kids was going to hinder my success in the world. And so to put all that away in a drawer and to get into the American path of forward thrust. Mm. And so I got sober when I was 32, almost 35 years ago. And I started to learn then that there was another way of life, of plopping and paying attention and getting my curiosity about life back and giving up on the belief that the outside world could give me the FDA stamp of approval. And that unfortunately and wonderfully, it was going to be an inside job. Oh, unfortunately and wonderfully, it has to be an inside job. I
0: hate the responsibility of being a person sometimes. I know, huh? Like, Don't we have enough to do? Why do I also have to be responsible for my own emotional health, which is Honestly, it's really hard to do as a child. I also was not aware that a B-plus was a good grade. I mean, if it was not an A, you might as well fail. And then if you fail, why even try?
1: You really can't win for losing, right? Yeah, it's like
0: there's no such thing as an almost, or an almost just doesn't matter. It just doesn't have like the same weight to it. In um your most recent book, you said that dread was your governess growing up and that you had hired her.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's the opening line in one of the chapters of Dusk Night Dawn. And I got the understanding that I had hired her from my husband, Neil Allen, and his vocabulary for that same idea is he would call it the superego. And I would call it my governess, dread, who raised me. Same thing, but what he taught me was that she kept me alive, you know, for the first six years. And she helped me not run out in the street, and she helped me not swim out past my ability to stay afloat. But that after six or seven, I was very good, both as a swimmer and at traffic safety. (laughs) What Neil does at Shapes of Truth with his clients and in his book is he actually brings forth the superego or the governess and has people talk to it on the table. And he affirms them. He says, I'm never going to get rid of you, so don't worry. I'm just wondering... Who hired you? And the answer is always, you hired me. You know, mm-hmm. you hire me because we were raised in often such frightening homes and marriages that to stay small seemed like a way of us staying safe. So that dread or the superego constantly tell us stuff. And I know you, as a writer, know this mm-hmm. that we just freak ourselves out constantly. Dust Night Dawn is my 19th book. And if I start a 20th, I will hear that voice of, dread saying boy talk about beating a dead horse or um boy has the well run dry right i mean you'll be there with me Uh. in spirit and i'll be there with you when you are at work on your new book and we hire that voice or we don't banish that voice because to be a woman especially and to be big and juicy and free in in the 50s meant you were going to be exiled As a child, it meant you got sent away from the table without eating. So it's a long road back, but it begins with the awareness. And I hope my book helps you be kind of spritzed awake to how we keep summoning that bad voice because it's so terrifying to be big and juicy, right? So So we stay small and we still need help with traffic and swimming, But, you know, as my friend Terry, the priest, says, we don't get over here much. So you're not going to get over the dread or the superego. But Neil helps people help it find a a new vocation. And he has his clients say to it gently, I'll never get rid of you. But I'm wondering if you might be willing to be the ethical consultant for the community. And so there's a really great reading chair and reading light in the library. And if you could wait there and just read until we need an ethical consultant and then we'll come get you. And the dread and the superego are so pleased. It's obviously a, a job with a lot of panache and they go off and they wait until they're summoned to some extent. And then you can get on to being as bold and radical in your writing and in your life and in terms of your body and your self-image as you possibly can be one day at a time.
0: One day at a time. And also understanding that that things like this take time mm. and that it is a gradual and sometimes rocky and sometimes circular process, which is so difficult. You wrote, it takes such a long time to grow up and I hate that. And I loved reading that from a 67, uh, 66 year old currently, because we have this sense that we are on our way
1: somewhere and we will arrive there. Right. Because that's the American way. That's the forward thrust. You know, this idea of being exactly where you are in the moment is very problematic for the parents and teachers, because if you're sitting around savoring things like, you know, Ferdinand the Bull it means that you might be falling ahead in your studies and there might be somebody in your third grade math class who's taken over as the best student in that subject. So God, I just read a beautiful line of Thich Nhat Hans. of course. He said, you have an appointment with life and that appointment is scheduled for the here and now. <laughs> mm. But right, that is not efficient and that's not going to help me sell books, right? And that's not going <laughs> to help me Position myself for the next one. But it's such a long road back from that kind of thinking that you got to figure out the next step. You got to figure out your next move. And it just starts to argue a wasted life. Yeah, it starts to feel
0: that anything that is not constant forward momentum must be a step back when in reality and in nature, which you observe so beautifully, nothing grows forever. No.
1: Nothing. No. Actually, in the last book, the book on hope, which is why I wrote this book, because I was going around the country when we could still do such a thing, you know, talking to people about the hope book and the people in my audiences just didn't feel any hope at all. You know, they'd had a really scary government for a couple years. They had really scary things happening at the dining table. They had scary teenagers, scary marriages, parents becoming very, very old and infirm. Dust Night Dawn was a response to that experience where not one audience was exuding hope. So I talked in that book about um, being in the garden of a church with a very, very old friend whose grandchild, who's a kid of 30, say, (laughs) was freaked out about death. And so we were at one point, just studying the hens and chicks, Mm. cactuses in the church garden. And what you see are these baby chicks huddled around the mom, but the mom's getting older and they develop this beautiful rose colored border around them. And then you see the mom's moms and they're not growing really anymore. And they're turning into the dust from which we spring into which we return. But as they are returning to dust, it's not dust. It's nutrition for the soil, you know? And so they are helping the new baby chicks grow strong and then helping the new baby chicks grow into really healthy, nutritious moms. Yeah, death is
0: very scary. I have a child like me, emotionally just cut from the same anxious, deeply feeling cloth, which is so difficult. It's so difficult. And for our listeners who are, who made, there might be one or two out there who have not read one of your 19 books. And for them, I do feel very sorry. And also kind of of excited for them because now they get to like, just jump right in, which is how it felt when I finally read one of your books, which somebody gave me in college. And I didn't read till my husband died. And I was like, oh, this is why you gave it to me. This is why you gave it to me. What is life like when, Before you realize that dread is the governess that you hired and that you have some control over when you are, you know, emotionally, not illiterate, but, you know, sort of emotionally stifled by the people who raise you. How do you grow into an emotionally capable person?
1: Well, I got sober again at 32 And I stopped drinking and using and really numbing out all the time. I was also bulimic. I've been anorexic. I've really had every single disorder you can have, except for gambling, which my friends say is a big yet for me. But, you know, what I did till 32 was to just try to not have scary feelings and this very, very high degree of sensitivity. My parents were so unhinged by my open heartedness and sensitivity when I was a child that they had a book that was very popular in the 50s called The Overly Sensitive Child because it was apparently just such a nightmare to have a person like you. And so the battle cry of my teachers, of my parents, of my grandparents, and of my friends' parents was, Annie, you have got to get thicker skin, which is like, I would love that. How would I do that? And by extension, it means that the way that you are right now is really not okay. If you could become a pretty much completely different person, we would be able to really bear up better as your parents. I remember finding a
0: parenting book yeah, uh, that alarmed me in a similar way as a kid, where I was like, oh, is this how you see me? Yeah. Oh, like, like I fully knew it was purchased for me.
1: Yeah. You know, you might consider writing a book that's a knockoff of your podcast called Terrible Parenting 101. Because almost everything my parents thought was true coming up in the 50s and everything that I believed to be true about being a parent, i.e. the perfectionism and this kind of hippie version of helicopter parenting turned out to be a lie. And that you learn as you go what works for your kid and maybe no one else.
0: We'll be right back.
1: You know, when I was a child, if you cried, if you seemed too sensitive, if you had any of the bad feelings, such as fear, anger, or sorrow, you got sent away from the table without eating. So therefore, coincidentally, I developed a eating disorder. And so where do you get over that? I needed a lot mm. of therapy. Oh, I got sober. I didn't know how to eat. I thought you were either on a diet or you were a completely out of control, like animal, you know, and I had to learn, like I wrote about this in Traveling Mercies, but I had a therapist and I went to her fully bulimic with heart issues and I kept like belligerently saying, I was one year sober. I kept saying, well, I'm going to be throwing up later today. I'll be binging. And she said, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, you have free will. I said, yeah, because no matter what you say, I just want you to know, I'm going to stop off at the grocery store across the street. And begin the binge. And then by the time I get home, and she said, no, that's fine. I'll never take anything away from you because you'll want it back. And then she asked all of these really perverse questions like, when do you eat? And I was like, what? She said, when do you eat breakfast? And I said, well, I eat breakfast at breakfast time. (laughs) Duh. You maniac? What do you think I do? I know what the... And she said, well, are you hungry when you have breakfast and I was like, what does that have to do with anything? And she said, well, what do you eat? And I say, well, it depends whether I'm being good or whether I'm out of control. So if I'm being good, I would probably have some health food cereal, but not granola because it's so fattening with skim milk. Or I might have some yogurt with fruit. And she said, and, and it's not usually what you're in the mood for. And I was like, what? Who do you think you are to badger me? Like this. And I said, well, when do you have breakfast? And she said, well, I have breakfast when I'm first hungry. And I'd say, but what does that even feel like? And she'd say, hungry? Well, do you know when you're hungry? And I said, I don't have a clue. You know, (laughs) to be honest, I eat when it's breakfast time, lunchtime, dinner, and I eat a healthy snack in between and at bedtime. And she said, well, when I'm hungry, I feel this kind of scratchy emptiness in the pit of my stomach and uh, scratchy emptiness. And I said, and then what? And she said, well, then I asked myself, what would I like to eat? What am I in the mood for? Am I in the mood for crunchy? Am I in the mood for creamy? Am I in the mood for salty? And I said, so what did you have for breakfast this morning? She said, I had a roast beef sandwich. And I thought, you what? You know, that's for lunch. <laughs> that's a lunch food. And little by little by little, I had to develop this awareness of when I was hungry and what I was hungry for. Was I hungry for food or was I hungry for a phone call with a best Mm -hmm. friend? Was I hungry for a hike? Was I hungry for a nap? And if I was hungry for food, was I in the mood for nachos, even though it was breakfast? Or was I in the mood for ice cream? Well, if you eat ice cream for breakfast, the thinking, if you're a chronic dieter and you have eating disorder, if you have breakfast ice cream, then it means you're out of control and you have to eat all sweets, fats, and salts for the rest of the day, because you're going to start over tomorrow, right? Right. That's the system. And so it was just so perverse. And then then the first week's assignment was to notice when I was hungry. And it was like when um, Helen Keller learns the first word for water, Water. Annie Sullivan, right? Annie puts the pump water on her hand and, and signs into her hand water. And then Helen runs around the property, touching things, feeling them while Annie signs what they are. That's what it was like for me with food. And that's only one example because everything in answer to your question was basically me being <laughs> Helen Keller, not having a clue what my real feelings were because I was used to being such an excellent sport. When, when it's like terrible, how are you? Is like the most radical thing you could ever say. It's like, really, you're terrible after all the blessings that you are yeah. surrounded by? It's like, yeah, I hate everyone. And But now when I call my best friend who's just like us, I say, I hate everything in all of life. And she says, oh, I'm so glad you called. Let's go to Target, you know? So what happens is for me in sobriety and in therapy, I began to develop friendships with people who weren't conning me, that they were almost always in a good mood and had a really beautiful, positive attitude. I found people like me for whom it was safe to tell the truth, for whom it was medicine to tell the truth and hear the truth in response. And my best friend's son died three months ago, almost four months ago now, he's 23. And so for 13 years, people would say, how are you doing? You know, in this kind of lugubrious way. And she'd say, today is like the worst day of my life, but I'm really excited because I get to go to an AA meeting and my mom made me a gluten-free cake. One day about a year ago, when her son was clearly, clearly, getting ready to start closing up shop. I called and I said, are you okay? She said, I have to keep moving the goalposts of what okay is. So my son this morning is making art with people who adore him and other kids with brain injuries and he's painting. And so, yeah, I'm okay, you know? And so that really changed my whole perspective on, on how I am. And it's okay to be terrible because it's real. And I don't think you, and I know I didn't get the message that real was beautiful, but the message was that get the surface together. That's what we want. And that's what we're hoping for you. There's another piece in the book where my comedian friend Duncan Trussell says that when you first meet him, you're meeting his bodyguard. And I really think that's true for so many of us that you meet the person who is protecting the really shy, small, vulnerable young person inside of you who's so real who is still real. And I'm 66 for a few more hours. And even at 66, there's my girl right there. And so I do send my bodyguard out to meet people. And then if they're trustworthy, which is to say, if they'll tell me the truth that they're terrible or confused or lost or grief stricken, I will say, Oh my God, thank you for trusting me. Would you like a cup of tea? Yeah. Thank you for trusting me. And That's also, I
0: think how we become trustworthy people, but when you are terrible and the people that you care about, the people that you really want to care about, you can't get there with you or can't accept that for you. It's so hard not to take that personally. It's so hard not to like let that wound you and make you feel even smaller and even lonelier, even though it really has nothing to do with you. Their emotional ability has nothing to do with you, but it feels like it does.
1: Well, we were told that it did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It had everything to do with you. So first of all, the paradigm is that you're the reason that they're unhappy and also that you're the solution to their unhappiness, right? And somebody said to me the other day, somebody who had just gone to an Al-Anon meeting, and they said, my battle cry was that if they were happy, I was safe,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? That is so true. If the parents were okay, and then the teachers, and then the boyfriends, and then my child, if they were happy, I was safe. Mm -hmm. And if they had created just a catastrophe because of their own behavior and choices and consequences, I wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. And so it took, you know, I've got 35 years of recovery, and I would say about 20 of them I finally figured out that I could feel safe and have good self-esteem no matter where other people were, whatever they were going through, that they were on their own emotional acre and they had created just a mess or just a lot of. Misery and that, uh, A, I didn't have to go on to their emotional acre because I have my own and there's always plenty of work to do on this one, keeping it clean and watering my plants and and arranging the books. And I learned that I could be happy whether people were drinking or using or remembering to take their medicine. I could be happy and peaceful if they were staying stuck in a really toxic relationship, I could wish them well. You know, one great prayer, is bless them and change me, you know, and help me disengage from their choices and their condition. And it doesn't mean that I'm cold and I turn away from them. It just means that I can't get their toxic mess all over me because I don't know how much longer I have here. Dust Night Dawn was originally called the third third because it takes place in my third third. And a lot of it has to do with some of the wisdom and grace of being a little bit older the grace of my say, and so it's like I can gently release people and I do a lot of good deeds I'm kind of pathologically kind but I try not to get my goodness all over people <laughs> because it just keeps them shut down from the only thing that ever got anybody to wake up or get sober or get therapy or learn to eat in a healthy way which is the you know the willingness comes from the pain And if I'm medicating their pain for them out of my own disease of codependence, I'm keeping them from the one thing that might help them find a much, much better life. Oh, Oh, but it feels so good to try to fix people. It
0: feels so, it feels so righteous. I love to be right, which is also it's own disease. You mentioned your third, third and, I love that you present yourself as still growing up, even though you're in a third third. Mm-hmm. And I also love that in your third third, you found Neil and mm-hmm. I would love to hear a little bit about meeting him and falling in love and the difference in dating and partnering with somebody in your sixties versus your dating life in your twenties and thirties and forties, which was much different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I definitely wrote about it a little bit in the hope book because, you know, my son, Mm -hmm. who's 31, almost 32, has a tattoo on his forearm that says we never give up. But besides not giving up, I learned how to date on match. And I did match for a year with some really God awful dates. If you just Google (laughs) Anne Lamott on match.com, it'll bring up the piece I wrote for Salon. I learned how to date. And I learned what I didn't want. And I learned what I was holding out for. And I met Neil on Match. And I actually tried to get rid of him at first because he's very allergic to cats. And cats are my life. And then he said, if you put nutritional yeast on kibble, it would greatly, greatly reduce his allergicness. And I thought, well, I was trying to get into my pants or he has a manuscript because several men had brought me manuscripts in the year I dated. One had brought me uh. a plot treatment on our second date. And then Neil really didn't need me to try to promote a manuscript or he, he's just like a guy with a lot of integrity and it turned out to be true. So I wrote about our marriage in Dusk Night Dawn and the cat caught a soul, which was when we were watching the US Open one day. He said, Annie, can I ask you something? And uh, we had to make, get this patio pebble for a little patch of garden. And I said, oh sure. Cause I thought he always goes darker and I always go lighter. I said, oh sure. And he said, will you marry me? I was so, so surprised and shocked. I hadn't seen that coming. Then I said, can we have a cat? <laughs> Cause our cat had <laughs> run away. And he said, sure. So the cat caught us all with that. We got a cat and then we got married three days after I got Medicare. And now the cat sleeps with us because the nutritional yeast really does work. And that we're coming up on our second anniversary, and one full year of marriage was in lockdown. You know, I adore him. I really did get what I longed for, which was someone who was as smart as me and as spiritual as me and who had a great sense of humor. And the fact that he was good looking didn't hurt. He's very tall and he he looks kind of like William Hurt to me. And you can see him at Shapes of Truth. My son took his author photo and you can see. Oh, I Googled him. He's very Yeah, of course you did. I I did did
0: a a good stock.
1: Yeah, yeah, good girl. (laughs) So, um, you know, it's been challenging because one of the ways that relationships work at all is that you both are gone a lot. (laughs) You go places and we didn't have very many places to go. And one thing we love, love, love to do together is to travel. And of course, we didn't travel anywhere. We'd get in the car and drive out to the country, you know, when we felt really wild and crazy. And we listened to Beatles. And so some of the book is about what do you do? People are annoying. I'm annoying. And how do we bear each other's foibles and wounded parts and scar tissue and... Well, we do it one day at a time and we let ourselves have really bad days, you know, and we let ourselves be different, which I hate. I would like him to be almost exactly like me. And he has these brothers and we have these family reunions on the East Coast with them every year. And they are all know-it-alls. And I call them Wikipedia on PMS because they're always trying to one-up each other in terms of their brilliance. And I'm not that way at all. And so Neil will get really frustrated and mad and say something really harsh. Then I cry and then he stomps off and about 20 minutes later, he's done with it. And he comes back and he apologizes. Sometimes it might be a few hours, but, you know, Jesus said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So we try to work it out before we go to sleep. But then what I do is I get really quiet <laughs> and then I weaponize The quiet and Sam and Neil have a ball comparing notes on my weaponized silence, but you know you learn that feelings aren't facts. Neil was raised the way he was with the difficulties he had as a child, which were very heavy, but different than mine. And he gets to have them, and I get to be the way I am. I am. I know I'm kind of a ham on stage, but in real life, I'm just shy and I'm still an overly sensitive child and he adores me. And I'm the same woman that he on our second date realized he could never be apart from even for a day because we really haven't been apart since our first date except when one of us had to go out of town. And I'm the same woman he proposed to And if he didn't know that the quarantine was coming up and we were going to be in lockdown, I'm still the same woman. He's still the same man.
0: We'll be right back.
1: There's a chapter in Bird by Bird, um, my writing book on perfectionism, because I really call it the voice of the oppressor you know, the voice of the enemy that will keep you small and screwed up and cringy your entire life. And so for my writing students, I really, really try to help them break through the perfectionism. And the way that you do that is by failing more often and affirming how amazing and brave it is to make messes and mistakes all over the place, to have to restart and reset over and over and over again. And that's really true of relationships, you know. There's a chapter in Dust, Night Dawn called, Can You Love Me Now?, based on the old Verizon commercial where the man's walking all over the property trying to get some reception saying, can you hear me now, Can you now, can you hear me now? And the piece is about really kind of decompensating in front of him in public surrounded by 300 people. And it's like, now you can see that I'm very fragile. I'm extremely brave in some ways and on some days, and I'm extremely fragile and sensitive can you love me now? And and I got really ugly and Matt, can you love me now? Can you, I said some. can you love me now?
0: And he could <laughs> and he can and he yeah. does. And in your twenties and my twenties, like even if we can't verbalize it or it, we couldn't have drawn a picture of it, what you want, what every person wants is to be seen and heard and known. But being known is so excruciating sometimes. <sighs>
1: Being seen, being seen. It's like the most terrifying thing. I was taught that it was the most terrifying thing on earth. When I was a kid, you don't let people see what's behind the door of your house. And you don't let people see what's behind the door of your being. I mean, you learn in recovery and therapy. If you wanna heal it, you gotta reveal it. But I can tell you that was the number one rule when I was a kid was do not under any circumstances reveal to anyone outside of this household and best to any of us, you know, suck it up. My mom was English, carry on, stay calm and carry on. My mom was kind of a Monty Python character and um, (laughs) I mean, she was a passionate civil rights person and she became a lawyer and when I was 15 or 17 or something. and but she's also secretly a Monty Python character. And so no matter what, you don't let people see the truth of your being, the truth of your heart, you suck it up, you know? And so to let people see you, it was almost life and death, you know? And it's still a default place for me. It's where I land if I'm afraid, you know, I land in shame that I'm being seen for being like so gravely imperfect. And so I've had to deal with the shame constantly. But the thing about being in the third, third that I love is that starting around 50, I think, maybe early 50s, you still land on these default places of separation from yourself and from life and from God, but you cycle through it more quickly. I might cycle through a shame spiral in three hours instead of three months, you know, three days. And that's really one of the great blessings of the third third. I think in your early 50s, you start to realize how much shit you've carried around in your psychic airplane for however many years old you are. Like boxes, metaphorically boxes of paper which are resentments and the lack of forgiveness and and untrue ideas about yourself and untrue ideas about life and why we're here and how to live fully, and you realize that you you and your psychic plane have just been barely skimming the treetops sometimes, and that you're done. You don't like by fifty, you've lost a couple of younger people that you absolutely cannot live without and somehow have. You've seen that. Some days it just feels like there's a sniper in the trees that is picking off our most precious people. And so you get much more serious about how we're gonna live in the face of our, our mortality. And you know, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was 50-ish, I called the friends of the San Francisco Public Library. And I said, can you please bring a van to my house on saturday you know usually i take some boxes of books that i'm done with and they came and i gave them between four and five hundred books that i had moved with some from college i was only in college two years but in some cases 30 and 40 years that i had kept on my shelf so that people would think i'm more highly educated than i am that i thought would make people think i'm much much more spiritual and evolved than i am in some cases that people had given me that I'd either never read or hadn't liked, was never going to read again, but was worried that people would come over to my house and look to see if I had kept the books they'd given me. Right? <laughs> I do this too. Right. God. Like, is that crazy enough? And so they came and we loaded up 400 and something books. Then I moved, then I moved again Then I moved into the house where I first lived with Neil. Then we moved three years ago into this fabulous ramshackle house that we restored. And on our bookshelves, I mean, there's not enough space for the books we've been carrying around for 30 years. And on the bookshelves, there are only books we love, that we love because just to see the spine of them makes us happy, you know, those books, and other books that we might reread, and other books that when the young people, Neil's daughter lives with us and My son's here and books that we want to foist on them. And, um, you know, only those books. And so I think that there are various ways to do the equivalent of calling the friends of the San Francisco Public Library. You know, first of all, with your clothes, oh my God. I mean, I've had so many clothes in storage that I secretly believe will fit again. But they're not going to fit again. And why do I care if they do? Or clothes or shoes I spent too much money on because I absolutely believe that there's something outside of me that's gonna fill up the Swiss cheese holes of my soul, even though I know that that is completely an inside job. And I give them away. You know, I'll give a $200 coat to Salvation Army because we've come to a very, very cold winter and I don't love the coat. And you know what? These shoes, I hate it. I spent $139 on them, I remember. And they've never fit right. And I, when I wear them, I'm unhappy. I'm okay for the first hour. And then I feel awful. And I give them away to somebody who might actually wear a size eight and not a size eight and a half as I now wear. So there's so many different ways to give away this stuff that is actually a great lightening of your life and your spirit that um, kind of hurts a little to give away, (laughs) but you do it, you do it afraid, you do it conflicted. It's like getting your writing done every day. I never sit down. I'm sure this is true for you. I never sit down just full of self-esteem. Oh, this is if I write again, be my 20th book. Oh, it's so exciting to be Anne Lamott and everyone. Oh, I don't, I sit down. I think, Oh God, here we go. And the blank pages are kind of like an unassaulted ice flow. And I don't write good first drafts, but here I am. We write shitty first drafts and you gave us that language. So thank you. Yes. Every Facebook post I've written, which is probably 800 words. I write an incredibly shitty first draft of that. And then I write another slightly better second draft. And then finally, I can give it to somebody who can really, really help me burnish it and help me bring it up to the most beautiful piece I can at that time yeah I was gonna say shitty first drafts is such a good one every other writer
0: I know we say that to each other I pass it down to my children and I think it's also just a good all of your writing advice is also good life advice too which is like it's okay to not be an absolute expert It's okay to be struggling spiritually and existentially. Like it is all, it's all draft work. This is all draft work. Anna Lamont, you are exactly as I imagined you. You are such a guest. I am going to cry. Thank you for being here today. And I have to ask all my guests um, the same question, which is, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm really well today. Um, this is my very last podcast. I told you you're my favorite person in America because you're my very, very last person. And because I was really, really looking forward to being on your show. And so it's the best of both worlds and to meet you and to know you a little bit now. Mm -hmm. And it's sunny here. It's the spring and it's, it's not warm, but it's sunny. And I have my very cutest sweater on And everybody's really busy with their own work. Sam with his podcast, which is HelloHumans.co. And Neil's got a book out in May. My grandson has his best friend over because we're all vaccinated. And so everybody has something to do that they can do really happily without me. So I'm going to take my old dog for a walk and we're going to both have treats.
0: Oh, I love it. And happy birthday tomorrow. Thank thank you
1: for being here with me. Have a wonderful... Blessed, dopey
0: day. So in the week since I talked with Anne, I've been thinking uh, about that idea, that shitty first drafts are not just for writing, but for life. And maybe this is a reach. (laughs) Maybe this is genius. But really, all we're doing every day is waking up to another blank page, doing our best to create something beautiful or at least not awful, and some days... We fail. We absolutely brick it. We shout at our children, or we flick someone off for switching lanes without signaling, or we let our brains fill with the absolute worst thoughts about ourselves or other people. And some days we are brilliant and gracious, and it pours out of us so easily we can't even remember a day when we didn't feel so beautiful and generous and kind. And we think, like, you know, everyone, take it easy, relax. It's just life. And honestly, most days are somewhere in the middle. They're remarkably unremarkable and the details fade into the mush in the back of our brains because we did not save or ruin anyone's day. Those unremarkable days, they are so undervalued and underappreciated. There is so much noise in our world, so many people contributing to you and profiting up the idea that life is this endless quest for growth and improvement and that there is somehow a best version Of your life out there that it would be a crime not to aspire to. So exhausting. There was a line in Anne's new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, that I underlined and I highlighted. I'm gonna read it for you. This existential exhaustion is everywhere we look these days in our world, our nation, and in our beloved. That's the whole quote. And yeah, it is. It is an existential exhaustion. That is not based on our own inadequacy, but just in the fact that we live in a world where terrible things happen, even when we do all the right things. And that is not a me problem. That's a we problem. And every time we can see and make space for that pain and exhaustion in each other, we can make space for something else. We can make space for hope or growth or the recognition that there is more. The only guarantee we can give to the people we love is that there is more. More pain. Yes, more joy. Thank goodness. Whether or not we're good or whether or not we earn it or level up, there is more because we are more than what we do or don't do. We are more than what we achieve or do not. We are more and there is more, even on our very worst days. This has been Terrible. Thanks for Asking. I'm Nora McInerney. Our production team here at Terrible. Thanks for Asking is Marcel Malikibu, Jaco, 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 Jaco. Do you get that reference? No. Jaco. J.Ka, Maldonado Medina, Jordan Turgeon, Hannah Mecoc-Ross, Beth, what's Beth's last name? Perlman. Pearlman. Pearlman. Yeah. Beth's Beth's Perlman. Her name is Beth's Beth's. Plural Beth's. There are two Beth's Perlman. There's actually just one Beth Perlman. She works with us. Megan Palmer. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. I'm Nora McNerney. We're a production of American Public Media. You can get ad-free episodes and bonus content and more talk about burping at ttfa.org slash premium. That is a way to support our show. And we have um, We Got Merch at ttfamerch.com.